Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Welcome, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives, and the three of us are finally together, kind of, sort of. It's been, it feels like a long time. Um, John and I were missing you in the previous show, Todd, since, uh, you know, we needed our wingman and uh, <laughs> you, you were probably out winging it somewhere. We're uh, not I sure where. <laughs> probably with my assistant behind me. Yeah, really. Well, John and I uh, dissected an accident in a previous show uh, involving Atlantic Southeast Airlines. It was one of their Embraer 120RTs. And uh, it was an accident that occurred back in 1991. And we were talking about the fact that uh, it, that was a famous accident, if you will, because Senator John Tower and a NASA astronaut were on that airplane that crashed down in Brunswick, Georgia. And uh, the NTSB found that it was a problem with the propeller and uh, the fact that the, um, the prop governor, if you will, uh, the prop control device uh, allowed the blades to go to a pitch position that was well below flight idle, which caused controllability issues for the flight crew. They ended up losing control of the airplane and crashing. Um, today, we're looking at a subsequent accident, same airline, Atlantic Southeast Airlines, involving another EMB uh, 120RT. This accident happened in August of 1995. Uh, the airplane had headed out of Atlanta, heading for uh, Gulfport, Mississippi. And in route, while they were in the in route climb, um, one of the passengers who did survive the accident described that he heard a loud thud. The first officer who also survived the accident stated that it sounded like somebody taking an aluminum baseball bat and, and beating a, an aluminum can um, is the way he described it. But it was apparent that there was a propeller blade failure on the left engine the left prop blade and the whole prop assembly actually separated from the engine. Well, when it did that, unfortunately, it distorted the engine in the mounts and the, uh, the engine nacelle and actually distorted part of the wing. So now that introduced a controllability problem because there was so much excessive drag on the left side and a uh, significant loss of lift that uh, the crew could not keep the airplane afloat. They were going to go back to Atlanta uh, for an emergency landing, but uh, they couldn't keep the airplane flying. They ended up looking for a, uh, an open field to make it an emergency landing. And while they were setting the airplane up for that emergency landing, it got into an uncommanded dive. 
And uh, by the time the crew actually tried, oh, they were trying, but by the time they, uh, they were um, able to regain a bit of control, the airplane had already started to strike treetops. It did end up in an open field, but uh, the airplane through the impact motions uh, ended up killing nine of the 29 people on board. Um, the airplane then had a subsequent post-crash fire. And I know, John, that uh, one, this fell on the heels of their previous accident by four years. Um, it focused again on a propeller uh, system that was manufactured and maintained by Hamilton Standard. And of course, the board was concerned and actually looked back at the previous accident, trying to find similarities to see what was going on. And I know that this was your uh, this was your induction into the NTSB as a board member. This was your uh, your IOE, if you will, for going out on an accident as a board member. And you'd gone out with another friend of ours and friend of the uh, the show, John Hammerschmidt, who was a uh, who was a board member at the time when you came on. Yes. And, uh, and a friend before then as well, you know, so fortunately or unfortunately, I was around the, the board for a number of years, uh, uh, partially because of US Air and the number of accidents that they had with Piedmont accident, the PSA accident. Uh, so I, I had been uh, a, a known commodity around the board. And I yeah, in more ways than one, trust me. <laughs> I got to know a lot of people, including you. And uh, yep. and Butch. And uh, that's that's a story for another day. But yeah. any but anyway, yes, I was there in the beginning, and it was uh, it was uh, different to be a board member than being the person out there digging around in it, because I had been a a, a, a tin kicker for for 30, 20, 25 years at that point in time. So my home was really out doing the investigation, not inside doing other things. So, so when, the, when the bell went off on this particular accident, you guys launched with the team. Did you fly down with the team or did you go independent? I, I believe I went independent, but at about the same time. So we, uh, we, got, to, we got there about the same time. In fact, I, then, a progress meeting had, had, uh, hadn't even started when I got there. So they, they beat me there by a little bit, but not much. And then, you know, as a board member, we've talked about it on previous shows, the role of the board member is to really be the face of the investigation, even though the investigator in charge and the rest of the team are doing uh, the, the technician work, if you will. Uh, the board member is responsible for trying to brief the media on the facts, conditions, and circumstances as they're found during the progress of the, uh, the investigation. But they also get involved, and with your expertise in aviation, uh, you were able to uh, view the wreckage. You went out to the accident site, and you made some I interesting observations, again, based on your background, that the typical board member, and, and that even holds true today, that the board members aren't necessarily aviation qualified uh, in any way, shape or form. And that's obvious with uh, the current chairman, but uh, because of your background, because of your maintenance background, you were able to look at some of the components and parts that were scattered out in this field uh, of this airplane and almost immediately make some very good factual observations. Well, actually we were, I walked out to the field with, with the team for the first time. 
So while the while the board member was back doing other things, I actually left with the the, the investigators. And uh, you know, and a few things were obvious just because of the way we approached the airplane. It was plainly visible that the uh, the way the trees were cut off, that the airplane came uh, through the trees with one wing significantly lower than the other. And then as we got a little bit closer, it was clear uh, that there was um, pieces of the engine that were quite a distance away from where the airplane came to rest. So we know we had a separation of some point at that point. So, uh, you know, the airplane was pretty well burned out in the middle and there was a lot of, a lot of uh, significant events that were found in this that did change aviation in ways that were not part of the probable cause, so to speak. So, and, and we'll get, we'll get into that. I wanted to, to just get your observations. When you went out and you found the, uh, the propeller assembly, the gearbox and the prop itself with the uh, blades in the hub, of course, one of the blades was missing or at least partially missing. What was, what was your initial thought when you saw that? Well, I, I just, uh, I sent the picture to Todd and we'll put it in with this, but, uh, the blade missing blade was clearly on the top side of this piece of gearbox and prop hub sitting out there. And as I walked up to it, you know, having spent years as a, as an inspector for the airlines, the first thing I noticed is a, is the uh, evidence of a pre-existing crack. So mm -hmm. it was obvious that that prop blade was suffering from a crack. Now I have no idea that that was going to be the cause of it, but it was clear that there, there was a crack inside the prop and it was working. So it, it uh, ultimately shown that that was the cause of the failure for the propeller blade. But at the time, all I knew was that it was obvious that there was a crack inside the metal of this propeller blade. And just for our listeners and, and viewers that uh, of the show, once, I mean, this is a four-bladed propeller. Once one of those blades has separated, now you have an extreme imbalance. And because of the, uh, the prop rotation, the RPMs that that propeller is turning, um, the vibration that is uh, the result of a missing blade and the imbalance is literally going to rip that engine off the, <laughs> off the airplane if the prop doesn't come off first. And in this case, the whole prop and gearbox left the airplane um, before it tore off the engine, but it had significantly distorted the engine and the engine nacelle created so much drag, damaged the wing that uh, you had a very experienced captain. You had a guy who uh, had better than 9,000 hours as a captain or as a pilot. Uh, he had 7,000 hours in the EMB 120. Uh, even though you had a relatively new first officer, um, he had better than 300 hours on the airplane. Um, Regardless of that experience, when you have an airplane that um, is significantly incapacitated and it doesn't allow the crew to actually fly the airplane, um, now they're doing the best they can to just control the airplane and uh, knowing that they're going to hit the ground, uh, try and do it in a, in a somewhat controlled manner so that you can have survivors. And in this case, out of the 29 total, we had 20 survivors. Um, albeit significantly injured, um, actually the, uh, the captain, if I remember right, um, did suffer a lot of burns and injuries, but was able to uh, resume his flying career um, at a point after this accident. Well, it, when, the, when the airplane caught fire, two things 
to note there. One is the airplane hit the ground, broke up, but the fire was not very large. There was a few grass fires uh, around the airplane. And all of those survivors are the ones that got up and got out of that airplane quick. The people who perished were very slow in moving. And it took more than a minute for the fire to catch and then another minute or two for it to be really an intense fire so that there was adequate time for those people to get out. But for whatever reason, I mean, this shock is all, it's not a criticism. There's lots of reasons why people don't respond, but uh, they probably weren't ready uh, to, to get moving. And I tell people in my presentations all the time is that as soon as that airplane stops moving, you start moving and moving quickly to get off that airplane. Yeah, that, and, and that's a, a great way to look at it. Now, when we talked about this, uh, the Atlantic Southeast accident 2311 from uh, our previous show, when we look at what the findings were of the NTSB, they found that in this particular accident, um, this was a composite blade. There had been uh, some issues with the blade. It had a lot of cycles on it. It went back to ham standard for an inspection. But apparently, John, it was the inspection process at the manufacturer that uh, even though they found a, a deficiency in the blade, somehow this blade got back into service. Right. So there, there was an AD note out against this blade. And that's an airworthiness directive for our folks that don't know what ADs are. Right. I was just going to say that. So it was a required inspection item, and it was done by mechanics for Atlantic Southeast, and they discovered an indication of a crack. So the propeller blade was changed. You don't have to change a whole propeller. You can replace one blade at a time on this particular uh, propeller. So they pulled the blade and they sent that blade back to the manufacturer. Now, Hamilton Standard had been in business in Connecticut for, for, from the beginning, I think. And they had recently made a business decision to move this a good portion of their operations uh, into the Carolinas. And the stated purpose to their shareholders was uh, uh, economics. So they moved this facility down and hired all new personnel, including a number of engineers and uh, of course, almost the entire workforce down there. So this propeller blade comes in and they have a bunch of, of people who are uh, task trained. They're trained to do one thing in particular and uh, it came to this um, one particular position, a uh, bench position is what oftentimes called. I don't know what, what him saying it's wholesome. But anyway, it comes to this one position and this uh, individual is gonna clean the blade up. And he uses a process to clean it up that's not approved. And it actually polished over the crack that was existing inside this propeller blade. And uh, he got an indication, but it wasn't a strong indication. So then he calls for help. And the engineers came over, and it was thought to be not a severe crack or a severe flaw. And they said, let's just clean it up and uh, put it back in the service. And that's what they did. And if you fast forward uh, a short period of time, when this, air, when this blade came apart, it was within just a few cycles of when the FAA said it was going to come apart. Mm. So the, the engine people here who happen to be here in New England, right up the road from where I am right now, uh, they were pretty good with their predictions on when this blade was going to fail. But it was a it was a failure of the process 
It was a failure of the training of that individual. It was a failure of the management of this, that individual, as well as the management of the facility. So it was a number of breakdowns, like we've seen in so many accidents. They're never one event. They're always a chain of events. And in this particular accident, the chain was all throughout the, the manufacturing and, and repair facility more than it was for the airline because the airline discovered the crack and sent the blade back. And Todd, let, you let know, we have a couple questions about the air rhythms directive itself. Now, just for those who uh, aren't in the business directly, how important is it when an airworthiness directive comes into your aviation organization? Something you can put on the shelf, something you have to jump to immediately, something that'll get you arrested if you ignore it. How important is an AD? Most airlines that I've been exposed to, and that's the big ones like United and, and uh, US Air and, and uh, even Allegheny when I was working for Allegheny, the, uh, an AD note comes in and it's got everybody's attention. And it's usually assigned to one individual in engineering uh, to, to shepherd that through, to find out what is it, what's the impact, what do we need to do, uh, you know, do we need a lot of parts to have them in stock to accomplish this, this uh, procedure, whatever the procedure is, does it call for test equipment that we have or we don't have, and then oftentimes you have to buy the right text, test equipment to accomplish the AD, so there's a lot of moving parts to an AD when it, when it comes in the door, and that's so why... You know, that's why most airlines watch those uh, very closely, because the lead time for some of the equipment you need to accomplish it can be measured in years. So there may be one or two pieces of test equipment out there, but suddenly 20 airlines need it. So you want to watch real quick. If you don't have it, you want to be one of those one or two that gets the first ones and not somebody waiting in line for the 20th. So getting back to that bench person who said, did the procedure that polished over it made it less likely to look at it. Would this particular AD have been so specific as to say what process should have been taken? Or is this something that would have been up to the airline to figure out for themselves? No, the process was pretty specific. And and, and they, did uh, they not this, follow the process? Well, it was, it, remember, this, this, this prop went back to the manufacturer. The airline did the right thing. They got the, the prop off. They sent it back to Ham Standard. And it was the processes and the people at Ham Standard who uh, who ended up failing in the, in this particular accident. And when you look at all the recommendations that the NTSB made, they were all directed at Hamilton Standard and the FAA um, because uh, they they tagged the FAA for some failure of oversight and uh, and of course with Ham Standard's deficient training programs. And John, the guy or this person that uh, that had inspected the propeller he wasn't I mean when you talk about qualifications he wasn't an AMP if I remember right no he wasn't he was actually he worked in a uh, automotive shop and that's where he was hired out because he had hand-eye coordination basically my words but you know he he had been working with his hands and they were going to train him and they gave him some training but again it's only at the task level and if it's something that falls out of the task, uh, that as an individual, he's at risk of making a bad decision. Unfortunately, he, he made the right decision by calling over uh, the attention to the problems he was having to the engineer, but the engineer also uh, wasn't uh, blessed with an ocean of experience in this area. So uh, again, I, I would say probably the blind leading the blind in this case and try, trying to do the right thing 
but not having the depth of knowledge needed to understand what they were doing and what needed to be done. So it was a failure, uh, those two failures right there. And then the, the following failure with the polishing of, of the blade uh, that eliminated the, the uh, crack, covered it over uh, as another failure. So the, the failures inside the Hamilton Standard facility just complicated themselves, built on one on top of the other on top of the other. It was four or five, you know, and yeah. all, all of this was to save money moving the facility out of Hartford. In fact, on the money side of it, after this was done, there was a TV program, and I forget whether it was 60 Minutes or 2020, or one of those type news programs where a representative from Hamilton Standard or United Technologies uh, admitted that this accident cost them over $100 million. Wow. So uh, you can buy a lot of training with $100 million. Yeah. And when you look back, and, and we've talked about this, and that is you're looking for a systemic issue. And it's obvious that there were some, there were some systemic issues within Hamilton Standard that translated from the accident four years prior into, into this particular accident. And, and, you know, that is the concern. And uh, then taking the appropriate corrective action, um, not only uh, at, the, uh, at the manufacturer level, but of course at the FAA level. And I know, Todd, that uh, you had a, a recent experience when you were doing your flying, and I wanna draw that in here in a second into this conversation. Uh, when we talk about tacit trust in the maintenance process or in the manufacturing process. But um, as we've talked about again on previous shows, and we talked about in the previous accident, the sister accident, if you will, to this particular accident, flight 529, um, there were some other deficiencies that the NTSB found that were of grave concern, um, but weren't uh, contributory to the particular accident. One, was that uh, they found that the crew did not communicate amongst themselves very effectively. That is, the two pilots were up front, they were doing their thing with that airplane. They failed to really give the flight attendant adequate notice about what was actually happening. The fact that they had had a, a left engine problem, the fact that they were trying to go back to Atlanta but weren't going to make it, they were going to have to make an emergency landing. They never really gave her any kind of information so she went through trying to secure the cabin and her first inkling that they weren't going to be landing at an airport is as she was getting the cabin prepared. She looked out the window and saw trees and immediately by the time she got into a semi brace position, they were already smacking the trees and, uh, and into the ground. And so the board was very critical of the fact that they didn't act as a crew. She wasn't adequately um, uh, able to, to get the, the cabin prepped. And then the concern, of course, is the fatalities and even the seriousness of the injuries. Could they have been mitigated or eliminated had she had adequate time to properly prepare the cabin for an, an off-airport emergency landing? So those are one of these peripheral, peripheral issues that we always look for to see if we can enhance safety. One of the other concerns, and I know, Todd, you looked at this, um, and that was the crash acts. Um, the airplanes are equipped, at least transport category airplanes are equipped with crash axes for the very reason that if you have a fire and you got to escape, especially uh, the flight crew coming out of a confined space like that, you got to break a window out. Those, uh, because it's a pressurized aircraft, those windows 
are very thick, especially the windshield. They're an inch to an inch and a half thick. Um, and it's not like you can just kick it with your foot. And so uh, the board found that when the crew tried to use a crash axe, in this particular instance, the crash axe was inadequate to break the window so that they could escape. And, um, and actually, so, they broke the axe. He, the, the first officer actually broke the axe. So it, it led to a, a looking at, at the axes across the entire fleets. And, and uh, virtually everybody changed out the crash axe to the to a more meaningful version, all metal, it, all metal axe, uh, which have the ability, the heft to, to break those uh, tempered glass windows. And it, and it is a design issue. We see that with cars all the time. People think that they can kick out the windshield with their foot and that kind of stuff. And you really can't or kick out a side window. And that's why I carry in my car a little device that's got a sharp point on it so that I can, you know, hammer the window with it. It'll pierce the window, cause it to crack, and then I can kick it out. Those are the kinds of things that, uh, you know, you don't really think about consciously, but in this particular instance, you know, could that have mitigated some of the injuries that the flight crew experienced uh, because they were unable to get out of the airplane in a timely manner? Well, and, actually, the, the first officer owes his life to a volunteer <laughs> fire department which is something one would not expect from a, a small community not near the airport. But this volunteer fire department showed up rather quickly, and there was a huge fire right behind the cockpit door. And the captain was uh, uh, perished, but the first officer was trapped in there. He was pinned, and they kept the fire away from the cockpit. They kept him fogged out, so to speak, with, with uh, misted water. They broke the window. It took them a little bit themselves with their with their axe, but they were able to break the, the sliding window and get a hose in there to keep the heat and the, the fire away from him and uh, saved him while the other the rest of the volunteers put the fire out just behind them. So that, that was a, a, a very good job, very thoughtful from a volunteer fire department. In, in wrapping this discussion up, gentlemen, uh, you know, in, uh, and asking you about how your flying is going, Todd, uh, you brought up a point um, that you've been flying on a regular basis and you went out to the airport and you were doing your pre-flight inspection of the airplane and you noticed something curious about the airplane you were going to fly. And, and again, we always talk about the tacit tr uh, trust that we end up putting as pilots into maintenance personnel or even the aircraft manufacturer. Um, with my engines that uh, I used to send out for overhaul, I always sent them back to the manufacturer so that I had a, a remand engine from the manufacturer. So you put a lot of trust in the fact that they are going to disassemble it, inspect it, and then reassemble that engine, replace the parts that need to be replaced, and they're not going to shortcut the process and, and things like that. And you had an experience with uh, a wing on an airplane that you were going to fly that raised your concern or at least your awareness to something found in a pre-flight. Certainly. And, and with a pre-flight inspection, one of the things I'm always looking for, and uh, it'll give you a picture here, I rent my aircraft from an organization. There are three different Cessna 172s that I can rent. Um, this is one of the three that, uh, that I do, and they all have different quirks about them. And I'm going through the pre-flight inspection, looking for anything out of the ordinary, dents, you know, et cetera. 
but I saw something I'd never seen in a pre-flight inspection before. I look under the aileron, lift it up and see what's going on. All the screws are in there. Look at the uh, flap, it's like, wow, this was uh, either, either, either in maintenance recently and they super, super clean this up or something else is going on. Then the thing that really got me going is the leading edge of the right wing, there were hardly any bug splatters on it compared to the left wing, which had a normal set of bug splatter. So I asked my instructor, what happened to this uh, wing here? So it was in a wing strike a few weeks ago and they replaced the wing. So two or three things go through my head. First being, I go in there, I check to see if there's anything in the logbook uh, for that particular aircraft. And at least the paper I was looking at, nothing stood out. And here it is, this happened and I wasn't aware of it. That's on me. It's like, all right, is there a process I should be going through whenever I check out an airplane to see if there's a write-up about something like this? Now, full disclosure, this organization has full maintenance records. It's at another airport. And I can always ask for permission to go look at those records, which I will do in the near future. But I thought to myself, okay, when you replace a wing on a Cessna 172, it's not like going to the local auto parts store. Those things aren't just hanging around. How did they go through that? So again, that's a question I'm going to ask. More importantly, how did this airplane get in a wing strike event? And I heard from the instructor that, oh, it was one of these situations where they had a tailwind on landing. There were several people in the pattern all of whom were flight instructors flying with students. There was a relatively new controller in the control tower. Any one of these four, three aircraft and controller could have called for changing the runway around so you have a headwind. None of them did. That's a, you know, an issue that can't be resolved by looking at the documentation, but you say to yourself, well, gee, like John pointed out recently, you have a lot of new people involved in aviation, even as flight instructors. Had there been at least one very uh, experienced flight instructor amongst the three who were flying, would that person have shined up and said, hey, this doesn't look right. And in fact, the incident aircraft, was, I think it was a second or third uh, attempt to land. By the way, thanks to ADSB uh, um, resources like FlightAware and FlightRadar24, I can go back in time, literally replay what happened during that sequence of events. Now I can look at another resource, look at historical uh, weather information for that airport. So I can get a mental picture of what was going on. On top of that, called the Boston FISDO. I said, hey, I'd like to get some information on this. They said, good, go over here for our Freedom of Information Act request. Here's the, uh, you know, the event number and they'll get back to you in a few days. And I just literally had called them like five minutes before we started the show. I'm expecting to get something from them within the next month or so. so Stay tuned. When all the data gets put together and I go and look at the maintenance records, I can give you my own version of, gee, I'm concerned about my airplane. What can I do as an individual to address my concerns and answer the question, is this aircraft in any way questionable with respect to me training on it in the future? Very interesting. And one of the things that of course, we're concerned with um, is the fact that you didn't know about that. Um, and where operations are remote, like you were talking about, why isn't there some sort of discrepancy? I mean, look, one of the things that we have to worry about when I look at a logbook or you look at a logbook is determining if the airplane's airworthy, not just from the physical standpoint of walking around, but you got to make sure that it's airworthy in all the paperwork. Um, because that too is your pilot as a pilot is your responsibility. 
And how are you going to be able to determine that if you don't know really the history or at least the immediate history? Um, because this happened so you know close to the time you were flying within weeks, how were you able to determine that? And, and I think that maybe the flight school should have a cheat sheet in there or at least some sort of maintenance that looks back at least a year, if not six months, so that you can see, okay, what's transpired over the six months? How do you know the airplane meets IFR currency? Because you have to have a static check, you have to have an altimeter check and things like that. Where is all of that recorded if you don't have the maintenance logbooks <coughs> with the airplane? So these are the kinds of things that even the flight school can learn because if you get ramp checked, how do you prove to the FAA this airplane is airworthy with the limited records or record that you may have in that airplane? And, and that's a big issue. So um, these are the kinds of things that, you know, not only acts investigation, but having a show like this where we can talk about it. And now you're putting the, the practical application to the pre-flight and, and the fact that you were keen uh, you had a keen awareness of the fact that, man, those screws are brand new, you know, something's up, better check it out. And that kind of thing. A lot of pilots would just blow it off and just keep on trucking and, uh, and can't do that. So uh, I think that, uh, you know, again, I have a lot of trust in the people that work on my airplane, both the manufacturers and the maintenance folks, but trust, but verify. And, um, and, and that's really the big point. Well, and, gentlemen, and I know trustworthy. The other trust issue here is a trust in the process. There's a process of getting information about incidents. Yeah, you can go to various online places, including my website, but that's not official. I want to get it straight from the horse's mouth, which is why I went straight to the FAA. I went there. When it comes to maintenance records, sure, I can sit around and do some hangar flying and say, well, what about this airplane? No, let me look at the documentation. Once I get the straight information, then I'll feel more comfortable. I don't care how good the source is. I want to get it from the official source. And, and, and this very, very hard to do. Uh, yeah. You know, with large repair stations today, they're allowed to just give you a work order number and a, a 10,000 foot view of what the work was done. And like everything else, the devil's in the details. And oftentimes uh, you've got to really dig into work orders, which are only required to be kept for two years by the, by the facility doing the work. And it's supposed to, the work on is supposed to be kept with the logbook, but it's a separate piece of paper or multiple pieces of paper. And uh, I've heard over and over again from people telling me that uh, when they bought the airplane, there was no work orders with it. Yeah. They went out, they, they sort of get lost. So you don't even know the damage history of the airplane before. And, and that's why, you know, in this case, Todd, you don't know if that was a, a major repair. If it was a major repair, then a uh, form 337 is, is required to document all the work that was, uh, that was performed. And if you don't have access to the logbook records, every time I buy an airplane or um, have any kind of, you know, extended time in an airplane, I request from the FAA all the history on that particular airplane by end number. I want to know, I want to look back at what was done, what was recorded as a major repair to that particular aircraft. Well, gentlemen, uh, of course, uh, you know, duty calls for me. I'm always short on time because they keep crashing. And unfortunately, I keep working as you guys do. So uh, I want to wrap this show up uh, with giving you the second to the last word, Todd. 
about our, our discussion today, because of course I have to leave it to the grand master for our final <laughs> words. Well, based on what I just said about my experience, if you have an inkling that something's out of place or something's kind of squirrely, follow up on that inkling. Because even if you're not an expert in what you think is going wrong, you have the responsibility as not just the pilot in command, but the person in command of your flying career to not just sit there and complain, but to take action. True. John? Well, I, two things. I, again, I'm, I keep expanding this. One is we, we've, we have been trying to keep these uh, sessions to 30 minutes because we've had many, many, many of you uh, write in on our Facebook book page or communicate with us and tell us that they don't want the hour-long shows. They want them to be able to listen to them while they drive to work or at lunchtime. And so we've been trying to keep them to 30 minutes. And oftentimes trying to keep it to 30 minutes, we can't cover all the issues uh, in the reports or all the side stories. So we need you all to keep that in mind that we try to extract the ones that will have the most educational value for the average pilot and to do that. And the second point is the point I always make. If you're gonna go fly and do a good session of pre-planning, pre-plan before you leave the house or the hotel, redo it again when you get to the airport, check the weather and where you are, where you're going and everything in between. It's summertime now. We know thunderstorms pop up seemingly out of nowhere. Uh, you need to keep uh, that in mind and keep your eyes open and keep watching the weather. Today, we get good weather right in the airplane on our iPads or, or our electronic gadgets. So that's always helpful. And as Todd mentioned, the pre-flight, and I hope you picked up some of that stuff from, my, from listening to me preach about pre-flights. <laughs> For the last couple of years, I mean, touch your airplane, move it. Uh, you mentioned, and I was smiling, uh, how you you moved the, the uh, flight controls and you saw new hardware, and it's a that's like an aha moment. What's going on? All right. So if you if you have an airplane that you can reach up and touch it, do it. You'll be surprised using the using your feel as another sense. And after you go flying, please put your head on a swivel. With drones, all so many student pilots out there, it's just a very difficult situation in good flying weather today. So you got to keep your eyes and your ears attuned to everything that's going on around you. Your ears can your ears can tell you how good your airplane is, and your eyes can tell you who else is around you. So please fly safely. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at Avemco.com or give them a call at 888 888- 879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe. <laughs>